You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to episode 215 of You Don't Know Flack. Today is March 22nd, 2022, and I'm your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about my top 25 concert memories. But before we get started talking about those concerts, I've got to load up my concert notes, which are stored right here on my handy-dandy Commodore 64. So while those are loading, that'll give us a few minutes to chat during loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. I hope you're having a lovely March. If you're in the United States and you have children, you may have just celebrated spring break, which is what we did. And we kicked off spring break by my daughter totaling her car. Her car was actually my wife's old car. She got a hand-me-down, a 10-year-old Honda Cross Tour, which is a it wasn't a popular model. It was a Honda hatchback that was built on the Accord frame. So it was a lot like a Honda Accord, uh, but a four-door hatchback. And so my daughter had a unfortunate moment in the middle of an intersection, lost control on a wet road, and ended up going careening off the road through a gas station parking lot before coming to a sudden stop by hitting a large concrete uh, block, which also happened to be holding up their drive through sign. So by the time all was said and done, the everything from the windshield forward on the car has been destroyed. Uh, the drive through sign came down and hit the top of the car, which broke the rear glass, the front tires uh, were, one of the tires was completely removed There was uh, multiple uh, points along the path where the car (laughs) went over curbs. And so, but in uh, Honda's, uh, to Honda's, uh, not their defense, but to praise Honda, I suppose, uh, the uh, airbags functioned as they were designed to and stopped her from going through the windshield or uh, receiving more serious injury and the seatbelt held her in place. The bad news was the seatbelt also broke her collarbone. So, uh, just, uh, the, in the week before spring break, she had to, my 16 year old daughter had to have surgery. They were not able to reset the collarbone. Uh, we basically, I've had a crash course in how collarbones work over the past two weeks. Uh, sometimes if they break, but the bone is not very far apart, they can be reset with a sling, but this was not the case. So she had to have surgery. A titanium uh, rod or plate was installed. I guess I should put a warning. <laughs> Some people get a little queasy about medical procedures, but they essentially screwed the titanium plate to the bone. The 
Collarbone has been reset now. In fact, we were told that her collarbone is stronger than anyone's, uh, than any natural collarbone. The titanium is much stronger than an actual bone. So, uh, the, uh, there's no real follow-up. There's no staples or stitches to remove. The stitches are on the inside. There's a very, very thin line that we were told the will not have a big scar. It will probably go completely away, but, uh, what are you going to do? You know, 16 year old drivers, uh, I think we've all been 16-year-old drivers. I went through my share of cars. I did an entire episode of You Don't Know Flack about the unsavory things I did to vehicles I owned. Her brother definitely had a few fender benders in his car. Both of my children, when they turned 16, begged us for brand new cars. And, oh, my friend's going to get a new car. And I said, well, just, just wait because I know um, it's not a given, but the possibilities of – things that can happen to young drivers. And so my daughter got to experience it firsthand. Uh, she is on the men. She is actually, uh, last week was spring break. So she is back to school this week. She's not wearing her sling anymore. We have to go to a follow-up appointment later this week, but she is feeling better. She does not have full motion in her arm yet. She can't lift her arm. She can't lift her arm over her shoulder right now, which unfortunately makes playing the trombone in the school band a little difficult. But other than that, everything is okay. So uh, she got off lucky. We're all uh, uh, definitely counted our blessings during uh, that that little incident. So that was a big chunk of what's been going on. The other chunk is that during spring break, we took a family trip and went to Tennessee, the big state of Tennessee. We specifically went to the Gatlinburg slash Pigeon Forge area. Now, I've always talked about those places as being two different destinations. When I was a child, we went, I've talked about this before. I haven't done a, a show on this yet. Someday I will do an entire show about it. But we went to the World's Fair in 1982, which was in Knoxville, Tennessee. And hotels were so booked up for that event that the closest we were able to stay was Gatlinburg. So we stayed in Gatlinburg, uh, but I remember we went to Pigeon Forge because that was where Magic uh, Magic World and, and a few other things that we went and visited were in Pigeon Forge. So, you know, as a, in a child's mind, those were very far apart. While we were there this time, I realized that Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge are about five miles apart. They're not not two giant separate destinations. So we definitely uh, went to things that were in both both places. My dad, I've repeated this line many times. My dad, when we were there in the 80s, uh, called Gatlinburg the circus sideshow without a circus. And it's not really an insult, but what he meant by that was that it's all the, it's like a buffet that doesn't have a main course. <laughs> it's just all these little things. It's wax museums and, and Ripley's museums and, and, uh, rides and, and all these crazy things, but there's like not a centralized reason to go there. Now I think silver dollar city was right in that area. Now Dollywood is in that area, but we didn't go to those things. Uh, so we just went there. We stayed in a, a lovely cabin right in the smoky mountains and drove down and did lots of fun stuff. I got to tell you, the thing that I enjoyed the most seeing this time was while we were uh, in Gatlinburg on the strip, 
I saw a Hollywood car museum. It, it was called a Hollywood Star Cars Museum, and it said cars from movies and TV. And I think it was twenty five bucks for two people to go in. So not not terrible. And of course, you're in that vacation kind of mode. Everything on that strip is vacation mode. And so my wife and I went through the museum. They had a uh, a. A General Lee from the Dukes of Hazard. They had an original Batmobile from the 60s television show, and then they had a more modern Batmobile. They just had tons and tons of cars, probably 40 cars, I would guess, altogether. They had an awful lot of cars from uh, Fast and Furious from all the different movies, which really kind of ran together. Like, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure I saw the first couple of movies, but uh, to, to, to have a car from Fast and Furious 6 is not really a draw for me personally. But they did have a Herbie the Love Bug. They had a Jeep from MASH. Of course, they had a DeLorean from Back to the Future 2. There's kind of this weird thing, though. Like, when you see the General Lee, I don't know specific numbers or details, but I know that during the Dukes of Hazard, when they were filming the original Dukes of Hazard, that they destroyed hundreds of General Lees. I, I believe I've read that they actually caused a shortage of that model of car when they were filming the show because so many of those cars were destroyed and they were they were constantly acquiring cars, painting them, and then jumping them and smashing them and, and ruining them in stunts. So, uh, you know, to see the General Lee, when, when I go to a museum, like when I go to a Smithsonian museum or, or someplace like that, and you see the something something like the hope diamond or you know you go to an art museum or the louvre or something you see the mona lisa it's like there's one of those things in the world and you have seen that one thing but going through a car museum like this they had a ecto-1 uh the car from ghostbusters and when i'm looking at it i think well i mean i think they built a lot of those or the generally is a good example because like i said they just uh so many of those cars were destroyed. And Herbie the Love Bug, I know that they had dozens and dozens of those cars that were constantly being rotated in and out for different uses. There's a lot of Herbie movies. So um, another one was they had the uh, 78. This was really a highlight for me. The 78 Trans Am from Smokey and the Bandit. So, But I know there's multiple of those cars, so it's difficult to say I saw the Bandit. Like, like I saw the car from Smokey and the Bandit, but I could say I saw a <laughs> car from Smokey and the Bandit. I saw a DeLorean that was used in Back to the Future 2, but I think there's a lot of these uh, ones that exist. The other thing is I definitely have gone – I went to a casino one time that had a Batmobile, a modern Batmobile, the, uh, like from the, the late 80s, early 90s, a Batmobile – a car from one of Elvis's movies, maybe like an old school Porsche that he raced. And gosh, there was one other car. But anyway, all of those cars were at this same museum. So either there are, you know, dozens of these cars or multiple of these cars, or they get swapped around from different museums. Maybe these were on loan at that museum. Oh, and the DeLorean was was at the uh, the casino. So in fact, those were all in Tunica, uh which is not that far, really, from uh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. So maybe they were on loan. I don't. I don't really know. But it just seemed like 
when you start going to different museums and seeing the same car, it makes you question how many of those models. But I tried to just put that uh, the fact checking part of my brain back and, and was really excited when you are standing next to the Ecto one and there are Ghostbusters logos on the side of the car and flashing lights inside and things like that. It's uh, uh makes you feel like a kid. It makes you uh, uh, feel like you have some sort of connection with the movie. And the next time you see that movie, you can say, well, I was right next to that car. And someone will say, you're next to the Ecto one. And you could say, well, I was next to, and Ecto one. <laughs> so anyway, we did have a great vacation, but it's good to be home. Uh, the older I get, I've said this many times, but there's always the uh, recuperation. There's the vacation from the vacation. And so that's what I did last weekend was a lot of sitting around and, and, uh, just getting ready for the work week, getting ready to get back to the daily hustle. And that's what we did. So we had a good vacation. We had a good vacation from our vacation. And now, we are back in the swing of things. So if you would like to find out more about supporting my shows, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara for more details. All of my patrons get behind the scenes blog posts, weekly rando Rob videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. Uh, if you would like to find another way to support my shows, but you don't want to do that through Patreon, one of the best things you can do for me is to share links to this show or any of the episodes on social media. You can also like and review my shows on iTunes. If you have feedback about this or any episode of my shows, you can email me at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a voice message on my podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. And with that, I can see my notes have finished loading. Sometimes it takes longer, sometimes it takes shorter, uh, but they are all loaded in. So let's get started talking about my top 25 concert memories of all time. About 10 years ago, a good friend of mine, actually it was my buddy Andy, who I interviewed on uh, You Don't Know Flack. Uh, was dating uh, his fiance, who is now his wife. Uh, his fiance at the time was working for a local radio station, and she came up with two free tickets to go see Nine Inch Nails. Now, I was a big fan of Nine Inch Nails. I'd followed them since the very beginning, and uh, my Andy's fiance couldn't go, and so he asked me if I would like to go with him, and I went, eh. I don't know, I guess. <laughs> and it was such a wishy-washy answer that he said, boy, do you not like Nine Inch Nails anymore? And I said, you know, I do. It just sounds like a, a hassle. It sounds like a lot of standing. <laughs> like, are we going to be able to sit? What's the parking going to be like? And I realized like how, in that moment how much I had changed since I was a teenager and in my early 20s. I've been a, a huge fan of music, of live music, of concerts. I had thousands of CDs. I have tens of thousands of MP3s. I have these huge music collections, and I've always loved music ever since I was a little kid. But, you know, I think I had a Nine Inch Nails like bootleg or maybe a DVD or something. And I just thought, you know, I've kind of seen it. Like, do I, 
do I want to go do all that? And that's when it kind of hit me like, boy, I think I'm getting old. <laughs> I think it was right around the time I was turning 40. Uh, and, and what kind of spawned this episode is next month, there is a concert coming here to Oklahoma City. It is three bands. These three bands may not excite you. Uh, the headliner is the band Ministry, and the two supporting acts are Corrosion of Conformity and the Melvins. The Melvins are, uh, you know, classic. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're, uh, I won't say what you're into, but what I'm into, uh, the Melvins, I've grown to appreciate greatly over time. Uh, they're a little bit challenging to get into at first, but that's not the point. The point is, is that if I were to make a list of the 10 bands that I wanted to see live, um, all three of these bands would be on the list. This would be three of the 10 bands and they're playing at a, like a small and not a small, a medium sized, uh, a re- like probably seats 1500 people, something like that. So, uh, like there's literally, if, if I don't go to this show, then I feel like I should never go to another concert again. <laughs> like, like this would be the show. If I were to say, what is one show that would get me out of the house, uh, to go see this show. And of course, over the past two years, I haven't seen any shows and really I could count on one hand, the amount of shows I've seen in the last five, six, seven years. So I, I just haven't gone out to concerts as much as I used to as a kid, but this, upcoming concert, which again is what uh, was the spark for the idea for the show was this, this combination of bands really should get me to go. I mean, I've never seen ministry live and I, I'm every year that goes by, I'm amazed that Al Jurgensen has not passed away. Every time I see him, I think he kind of looks like he's passed away at this point. <laughs> um, I have seen corrosion and conformity before, and I've seen the Melvin's uh, twice. One time was a terrible performance on their part, and one was a fantastic performance. So I'm one and one uh, with the Melvins, but I would definitely love to see them in a, a venue this size. So, uh, you know, I kind of started thinking about why did I start going to concerts? You know, obviously there were concerts that I loved, there were experiences that I loved, or I wouldn't have keep uh, returning to them. And so I went through now, sometimes on these lists, like on when I talked about documentaries, uh, I didn't really sort them like in a list of favorite to non-favorite or anything like that. But I did sort this list. I scanned through. I have a spreadsheet of all the concerts that I have attended in my life. I saved uh, most of the ticket stubs and, and flyers and, and things like that. So it's pretty easy to track down, especially with the Internet. It's easy to track down dates and and uh, locations, venues, things like that. But so I put these in a list. So this is a countdown style list. We'll be starting with number 25 and going all the way to number one, but these are my favorite memories slash stories of going to concerts, uh, dating all the way back to the mid to late eighties. And I think the most recent one was about four years ago. So that's pretty much the span we will. And by the way, uh, this entire episode is off the top of my head. I literally only made the list of the shows and I'll just be telling the stories from memory. So if they don't sound, uh, you know, exactly scripted out, that's, that's why this episode sounds that way. So anyway, let's get started. Number 25, I have the bullet boys, Cinderella and winger. <laughs> 
Now, one thing I should have done was looked up the dates of all these shows. So I'll be flipping back and forth to my spreadsheet and finding the dates for all these concerts. But the uh, this concert took place on March 28th, 1989. And this is on the list because this is the first concert I ever went to. I didn't go to any concerts with my parents when I was a younger child. So this was the very first show. It was in 1989. Uh, I was not old enough to drive in March of 1989. I didn't get my driver's license until August of 1989. So I would have been about 15 and a half. Uh, there is a funny story that I recall from that time. Uh, there was a, a girl named Heather who I was friends with in school. I'm still friends with her today. She had a guitar. I had a guitar. So there was this this connection where we both loved metal music. Uh, her younger sister had a bass, and so we would dream about these plans of putting a band together. And then it turned out that they were both taking lessons and learning how to play their instrument while I would sit at home and just play the same note over and over. <laughs> so I think if there was a problem with us becoming a band, it was me. Uh, but Heather had another friend. This was and more of an acquaintance of mine, but a fourth person. And the fourth person, uh, her mother loan her the credit card to purchase our tickets for these con for this concert. And so, uh, so what ended up happening was, uh, leading up to the concert, like a week or two weeks before, uh, the, uh, the fourth friend decided she got a, a boyfriend and decided to give my ticket to that boyfriend, <laughs> which I was very upset about. And my friend Heather was very upset about. And so we, we asked for the ticket over and over and, she said, no, I gave it to somebody else or I'm, I'm saving it for somebody else. And uh, this the fourth uh, person, uh, their mother was a elementary school teacher, and it was close enough to uh, where Heather lived. So I had rode my motorcycle over there, and we walked to the school after school, and we hit this person, the, her mother up. <laughs> this is how involved this was, and told her what was going on. And she said, I will get the ticket for you. And so I did get to go. So Heather... Uh, and myself and Heather's sister, and then the fourth person who sat very far away from me was not happy with me at the time uh, because I had got the ticket that she wanted to give to her boyfriend, but it was my ticket. Uh, so the, she sat on the opposite side of me, but uh, we did have a really good time. Uh, the show opener was Winger. I've talked a little bit. A few of these stories overlap. I did an episode about music, a podcast about music, uh, maybe last year or two years ago. And so I know I mentioned a couple of these. Most of these I've not talked about. But uh, the problem that everyone had with Winger was that he was – Winger, uh, Kip Winger, is by all counts a really talented musician. But when he performs in his videos and sometimes on stage, there is a second – person playing bass or he's playing to a bass track or something. So he does a lot of dancing, but not playing the bass. <laughs> and so, uh, if you watched Beavis and Butthead, you know, that winger kind of became, uh, represented the whole poser mentality when it 
came to metal. You had Beavis and Butthead wearing Metallica and ACDC shirts, and then uh, their friend Stuart, who was just kind of the tag-along guy, always had a winger shirt on. So uh, we were not there for winger. Now, Bullet Boys open. Bullet Boys had a couple of hit songs on MTV. They had Smooth Up In Ya, and they did a version of uh, uh, For the Love of Money, I think, and uh, they had a couple other songs, but uh, they they released some other albums later. But uh, the big draw for us was Cinderella, and they played um, some of their, you know, at the time, older stuff, but uh, Long Cold Winter was a big thing at the time. I remember the, uh, not all the stories are going to be this long, by the way, but uh, the uh, they lowered for the encore, they lowered the piano uh, as he was playing the intro to Nobody's Fool. Uh, it, it was... Uh, yeah, like it lowered from the ceiling, from the rafters, and he was sitting on a thing and playing the piano. Uh, but it was just such a great first experience to go to a concert, to see all these bands that I had seen on MTV, on Headbangers Ball and other videos, um, and uh, just to see them in real life. So it was a, a great first experience, and that's why it's uh, number 25 on the list, because it was my first concert experience. Number 24 on the list is Faith No More. Now, Faith No More, uh, I'm sure you've heard of, has released lots of albums. They had lots of ups and downs. They've had uh, some internal squabbles, and eventually they uh, broke up, then they got back together. But I saw Faith No More on June 17th, 1990. I saw them in a club in Oklahoma City, called kinetics, which I believe was supposed to hold like two to 300 people. It was a small club. Uh, this was the first club show that I ever went to. And so when I had gone to go see Cinderella and the bullet boys, uh, it was the definition of nosebleed seats. We were so far away. And this was before the days of concerts having large screens and cameras with, uh, so that even if you were sitting far away, you could see <laughs> the performers. A lot of what we saw were just little tiny people on a stage pretty far away uh, that we heard uh, Cinderella songs. And so we assume those people down there were in fact, the members of Cinderella. Um, but with faith, no more, I was on the front row. <laughs> I was in a club pressed up against the front of a stage looking at a band. I knew now in 1990, uh, uh faith, no more had released their album Epic. And so, uh, uh, a lot of people know, you know, you want it all like that song. Uh, and, uh, from out of nowhere was a single at that time, but they hadn't really broke big yet. I mean, they were playing a club that held a couple hundred people. Uh, and so I remember at one point, uh, Mike Patton, the lead singer was wearing these, uh, like fake fur shorts they were like like cargo shorts like that length or style but they were covered in fur and some girl threw her underwear on stage and he took her underwear and put them on over the shorts and there was a big lighting rig you know hanging from the ceiling with lights and he and Mike Patton climbed up amplifiers and jumped onto those things and was swinging and the sound people were yelling at him to get down i mean it was just a crazy <laughs> concert. This was very early uh, in their, in their uh, career. And I remember when the show ended, 
all the guys were walking off stage and they walked right past me. I mean, it was, I was standing right in front of, uh, you know, the amplifiers, like right up against the front of the stage. And they walked through the little gap on their way to, to you know, and I don't think there's a green room, but the little back area. And as they walked past, I go, Mike, which is the lead singer's name, Mike Patton. And he turned around and looked at me. And then I didn't know what to say because I just yelled his name and he had looked at me. And then I just kind of waved and then he smiled and waved and then turned around and kept walking. But it was this weird exchange where, uh, where I was, you know, five feet away from the person that I had just seen perform. The other memory I have of that show is that I don't know what exact technology the keyboard player was using. He had some uh, keyboard uh, on stage, but I very specifically remember it was hooked to an Apple II. I looked, I've looked for this online. I can't find, you know, any record, but I remember at the time seeing it, that it was an Apple II. And I remember watching him swap floppy disks. And this is in 1990. Um, but I watched him swap floppy disks and load in a different, I'm assuming sound patch for his keyboard. Uh, but it was definitely Apple II disk drives. Uh, it's just a, a strange memory that I have of that show. And again, in 1990, I would think that would be fairly outdated technology, but I, I was there and I do remember seeing it. So anyway, number 24 on the list was faith, no more in a club. Number 23 on the list, and this uh, uh, band name uh, is uh, PG-13, so get ready, but uh, the name of this band was Ancient Chinese Penis, <laughs> and I saw this band in 1992, and it was more, um, that was uh, the, the headliner, but the opener was a band called Big Skin Hearts. Now, Big Skin Hearts was a local band that... They they released several albums, but on the albums, it was just one person who recorded all the music. He did the vocals. He, he played all the instruments. Um, but for a semester or maybe a year, he was also roommates with one of my best friends who was going to the same college at the time. And so that's how we found out about this show. Now, this was uh, a show in the elusive – this wasn't really a show. This was two bands playing – uh, at at a house, like a house party. And this was the first college house party I ever went to. And so uh, my friends and I got this address. And I think when you walked up, uh, someone hit us up for $5 and we gave them $5 and they gave us a wristband and a red solo cup and told us where the keg was. <laughs> so uh, we went and got drinks and we went in the house and we watched uh, the Big Skin Hearts perform. Now, at this time, he had uh, other musicians with him. I seem to recall that instead of drums, he just had a drum machine. But it's been a long time. I could be misremembering that. But I think that's what I remember. But then came out the headliners, Ancient Chinese Penis. <laughs> and uh, I actually have 
uh, an ACP cassette tape. I think I got it that night. Uh, in fact, it's called Envy. And um, I remember, like, this wasn't a concert like we were in a club or a concert like we were in a a stadium we were in someone's living room and the band was right like like you could not get away from this band we were right there and i don't remember how many people were in this there were a lot of people in the house there weren't that many people in the living room maybe 20 people or something and uh someone i remember someone had made a stencil uh that looked like something you probably wouldn't want stenciled on your wall and spray painted something on this wall. <laughs> and I also remember someone kicking a hole in the wall. And at one point, I believe it was the bass player. That's, that's who I remember this being stopped playing and said, this is my boss's house. And he's out of town this week. You guys have to respect this house. And then they kept playing. And I thought, wow, we, <laughs> I mean, there were at least a hundred people in this house. It was, uh, uh, right near a college campus, there were cars parked all over the place. Um, and it was just this really fun memory. And I've looked up both of those bands. Uh, I have original cassette tapes from both uh, Ancient Chinese Penis and the Big Skin Hearts, but I have found other albums uh, for download. I would buy them all if I could if I could find them, but they're just impossible to find anymore. But uh, it was um, it, it was just really. Uh, <laughs> an eye-opening experience for my first college party and to see bands uh, not playing far away, but seeing bands that I could reach out and touch the guitar <laughs> is how close we were standing. So uh, that's uh, number 23 on the list, Ancient Chinese Penis and Big Skin Hearts. <laughs> Number 22 on the list is oil filter. Now I've talked about oil filter before. Um, I, I became friends with members of the band and oil filter was based in Spokane, Washington. And the, you know, I had gone to Spokane on a business trip and went to a club and this this was like total one of those just happenstance things that basically changed <laughs> like big portions of my life. Um, but I had gone to um, – I was in a hotel and it was snowing and there was nothing to do at the hotel. So I went out looking for a Taco Bell. And as I was out looking for a Taco Bell across the street, I saw this little club and it said four bands, three dollars. And the four bands were written on the side. I don't remember all of them. One was called Clabberhag, which I've looked up. They were a great band. Um, I'm not sure who all else played. Maybe Cottonmouth. But uh, but one was Oil Filter. And they played a style of music, um, kind of sludgecore, pretty heavy. The, uh, the guitarist had a modified cabinet that had uh, subwoofers in it and uh if you're if you know anything about music this will mean something to you if you don't uh you just take my word for it but most guitars are tuned to e 
And then when bands started getting heavier, um, like a lot of the new metal bands like Korn and, and, uh, you know, Deftones and, and, and bands like that, when, when that kind of started bands, I mean, they they didn't invent this, but bands would start tuning down to, to D like one note lower than E right. And then some bands tuned down to C and then there were even some bands that turned down, tuned down to B like really, really low for a guitar. Well, the lead guitarist, uh, of oil filter tuned down to baritone E he tuned his guitar down an entire octave. Um, and you know, some of the strings he had replaced with bass strings. So it was just this wall of bassy heavy music i had never heard anything like it before uh, i did end up purchasing their album on cassette at that show when i moved back to spokane uh, i reconnected with the band members they helped me if you listen to the episode uh the you don't know flack episode about in tune magazine you can hear more about it but i did end up interviewing them and working with them i did uh the uh art, the layout and design for their CD. And so we, uh, uh, you know, really had a good relationship and I'm still friends with uh, a lot of those guys on Facebook today. So, uh, it was, uh, it was quite the adventure and, and it really just opened my eyes to a new kind of music. So number two on the list was oil filter in Spokane. Number 21 on the list is Rick Springfield, who I saw in 1999, the summer of 1999 at Frontier City. Now, Frontier City is uh, the uh, amusement park here in Oklahoma. It's a very country, obviously, frontier uh, theme. They have cowboy shootouts, and they have all kinds of rides. It's, it's since been purchased by Six Flags, but... Uh, they always have concerts during the summer. They have a big outdoor amphitheater and they have concerts. And uh, one of the bands uh, or musicians that came was Rick Springfield. This is the type of place where you could always go to see 38 Special or maybe ZZ Top, like those type of bands. Uh, but they were having Rick Springfield. Now, this was around the time where I was also into trading video bootlegs. And I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but uh, this was really before you could trade. Uh, this was before people were doing this on YouTube and uploading concerts. The only way to get bootleg concerts where people would videotape them or, or uh, trade copies of these videotapes. And when I say videotapes, we're talking analog VHS tapes. So once you started getting some, like we had a, a couple of friends of mine and I, we put our, we pulled our list together and made a web page and said, Hey, this is the tapes that we have and everything. You had to rank your tapes, uh, by quality and, and what generation they were. Like if you had a copy of a copy, you'd say, Oh, this is a, a third generation, but we got really into this. I bought a dual deck VCR just for this hobby, just for making copies of, of video bootlegs. Um, so, but all the, all the video bootlegs that we had were either ones that I had purchased or that somebody in the group had purchased from a local store, like a bootleg. There were a couple of music stores that had video bootleg sections or ones we had traded with on the internet. So we would find people on the internet 
and you would make a copy of a tape and they would make a copy of a tape and then you would literally go put it in the mail and mail your tape off and then you would hope that that they mailed theirs and sometimes they did sometimes they didn't you know but uh when rick springfield came uh i said you know what we should make our own bootleg and so i just walked into this outdoor place with my camcorder this was a small like a sony you know hand uh camcorder and uh, I was standing towards the back. So in the mo- this is an outdoor amphitheater. So a lot of people are just sitting in chairs or sitting on the grass. Uh, and then I was standing in the back and there was some picnic tables. So I stood up on this picnic table and under like a little pavilion and stood there and recorded this entire concert. And about three songs to the end, I felt my friend tugging at my leg and I looked and it wasn't my friend when I pulled my eye around. It was a security guard. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, don't mess me up. I'm taping this. And he said, you can't tape this. I said, why not? He says, you're not allowed to videotape things in. And I was like, well, that's weird because I walked in here with a, a video camera and I've been standing on this thing and I've been taping the whole time and nobody said anything to me. And he said, yeah, you can't tape this concert. So I, I didn't know. I didn't, I, you know, I guess I didn't know you couldn't do that. And so he said, you're going to have to give me that camera. And I was like, no, I'm not. Are you nuts? Like this camera was like $500, you know, and we had bought it. Um, when my wife and I got married and, and, uh, uh, we went on our honeymoon and, and went on vacation. We were like, we need a camera, you know? So I was like, I'm not giving you this camera. And he goes, well, you got to give me the tape. And so I was like, well, I guess, you know, uh, so I, I took the tape out and gave it to him. I mean, I don't think the tapes were that cheap. They were probably 10 bucks, but it was a lot more than a, a camcorder. And then the whole, like the last part of the show, like three songs, I just sat there with my face, like super red, you know, that embarrassed kind of feeling where your, your cheeks are all flush. And, uh, and yeah, I just felt really stupid after that. I was not going to give my camcorder though, but anyway, that was, uh, uh, just my big highlight memory of Rick Springfield. And I still, my wife has XM radio in her car and, uh, she, there's a Rick Springfield station and she listens to that. And every time I hear him talking, I think, boy, I remember that time I tried to videotape your concert as a concert bootleg. <laughs> so anyway, that's, uh, my number 21 concert memory, uh, was trying to bootleg a Rick Springfield concert. <laughs> My number 20 memory is of two bands that I got to see perform. Uh, one was Megadeth, and the opening band was Suicidal Tendencies. And this was in December, December 10th of 1992. Now, I had seen Megadeth one time before in a smaller venue, but this was the first time I saw them. Uh, this was at our, our local, it used to be the Cox Convention Center. Um, but, uh, you know, I, so we had gone there and I don't, that's no, by 1992, I surely, yeah, I was definitely listening to suicidal tendencies, but suicidal tendencies put on a great show. Now I had seen them, gosh, one time before. I'm not exactly sure when I saw them. Oh, I saw them with Queensryche. Um, and I think that's when I really got into them, you know, uh, because I knew, 
like the songs they were playing on MTV, but I didn't know all their old stuff, like Possessed to Skate and stuff like that. So, uh, But this was a great show. And, of course, one memory I have is of watching the bass player, uh, Rob Trujillo, who I saw later. He was also the traveling bass player for Ozzy, who will come up later in this list. And I saw him there. And, of course, Rob Trujillo or Trujillo uh, has gone on and – eventually joined Metallica and he's now the bass player of Metallica. So, but just watching, uh, suicidal tendencies perform in a, in a area that level was, was a great show. And Megadeth, uh, Megadeth, you know, I, you don't have to say, oh, I don't love Dave Mustaine's voice because nobody loves Dave Mustaine's voice. Hey, he doesn't sing because he wants to sing. He sings because he didn't have a singer, you know? Um, but to watch him, play the songs that he has written and to play those live is really amazing. Uh, just to sit there, you know, to watch him perform hangar 18, uh, or, you know, the parts of peace cells and, and, uh, oh gosh, just, um, you know, some of the more intricate songs, it was, it was really fascinating to like, I was trying to learn guitar. Uh, I've been trying to learn guitar for half my life, probably three fourths of my life now. Um, and the stuff that I could play that was advanced at all, I had to be sitting down and looking at the fretboard <laughs> and making sure my fingers were in the right place. And so to watch a guy just playing these really intricate leads, uh, while staring out at the audience and singing was, uh, was just a cool experience, you know? And, um, uh, I also remember, I believe this was the episode where I first saw Megadeth play mechanics. Now, um, mechanics is the Megadeth version of a song. Boy, this is complicated. Uh, when, Dave Mustaine was with Metallica, they wrote a song that was the four horsemen and, uh, he was a, a co-writer of, of the music. And so Metallica ended up recording after Dave Mustaine left the band recording four horsemen and putting it on their album. Um, so Dave Mustaine essentially re recorded the same song, but with different lyrics, but on the Megadeth version on Dave Mustaine's version, it is literally twice as fast. So, uh, and you know what? I, I may, slip some audio samples uh, into the show here. So that is the version of Four Horsemen. This is the version of Mechanics, the same riff, but you'll hear it's twice as fast. And so I always thought, I don't know for a fact, but I've always felt like that was Dave Mustaine's middle finger to Metallica. <laughs> like, you guys could do it. I could do it faster, you know, and that was always Dave Mustaine's thing. Like he was always comparing himself to Metallica. Like I have to do it louder. I have to do it faster. I have to do whatever, you know, which, um, probably was a big part of his drive, but 
nobody else was comparing him to Metallica. Well, I mean, in one sense, everybody was compared to Metallica, but uh, but nobody was like specifically comparing those two bands. So it's unfortunate that uh, that he lived in that shadow for so long. But anyway, just watching him perform live these intricate guitar parts that I had only seen or heard on uh, albums before makes that the number 20 concert experience. on the list is the time that I went to go see Ugly Kid Joe. Now, I cannot find the date that this happened. I can't find the year that this happened, but I can tell you the story, and I, I told the, essentially the same story on another podcast, but um, there was a local club that was doing a series of concerts that they called uh, Lodo shows. I think they were called Lodo concert shows or something like that. But uh, but the idea was that you could go to a concert for like $1. And so uh, one of those shows was Ugly Kid Joe. Now, this was would have been several years after everything about you and Cats in the Cradle. So they had already, uh, you know, had their... Uh, I don't like to call them a one-hit wonder, but a lot of people consider them to be a one-hit wonder. But they had uh, peaked in popularity. They had gone down, and now they're having these $1 shows. And so when we went to this club to see Ugly Kid Joe, the the night that we went, the air conditioning broke. And I do remember this was in the summer. I feel like it was in August, but uh, they uh, there was no air conditioning. And so they the, the club basically put on a coin beer night. So you could buy a bottle of beer with any coin. It could be a penny or a nickel or dime, whatever. And so while they were trying to get the air conditioning fixed and while people were waiting, they're selling coin beer. So now what you have is a crowd who's very upset, who's very hot and sweaty, and <laughs> is armed with empty beer bottles, essentially. And so Ugly Kid Joe took the stage. And they started playing, and I don't remember if it was the first song or the second song, uh, but somebody threw a beer bottle at the stage, and it hit the lead singer. Uh, I think his name was Whitfield Crane. It hit the lead singer in the forehead with a beer bottle, and I saw him like react and kind of go down. And I looked at my friend. I was like, "Oh, I think they just killed Whitfield Crane." Um, and the band is kind of playing, and then the band kind of stopped, and I couldn't tell what happened, but it seemed like. A fight was breaking out because we were, I don't know, we were standing on the floor and maybe 15 rows back from the stage or something. So once things were happening on the floor, it was difficult to see. And so the crowd starts moving and shoving and people are pushing. And my friend and I are standing there. And all of a sudden, a guy kind of comes through and just pushes his way in between the two of us and keeps walking. And I was like, what's that guy? And then we looked and I go, that's Whitfield Crane. And he had hopped off the stage and walked through the crowd and walked out the door. <laughs> and that was the end of the Ugly Kid Joe show. So the good news is everybody got a lot of cheap beer in a very hot club. And the bad news is I believe we only heard one or two songs that night from Ugly Kid Joe. And so that is my number 19 concert memory of the time we got to go see Ugly Kid Joe. 
Number 18 on my list is the time that my friends and I got to see Pearl Jam. This was in 1993, November of 1993. It was at the Oklahoma State Fairgrounds. And we, uh, the Urge Overkill was the opening band who I, I take them or leave them. I'm not, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a hater, but, uh, it, you know, it was what it was, but, uh, but my biggest memory of this concert is not really of the concert. We were all Pearl Jam fans and we liked Pearl Jam. And, uh, uh, I know in the media really stresses this thing that grunge is who killed metal and, and I'm sure it did, you know, I mean, as in regards to, uh, sales in regards to what was popular and, and all that. Uh, but for my friends and I, we, uh, I guess that's me and my friends, uh, we didn't, that wasn't us. We didn't like drop listening to metal and then jump over to grudge. We listened to all of it, you know? So we listened to Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and all that stuff, but we were still listening to Metallica and Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses. Like for us, it was just all music. We loved it all. And so, uh, anyway, the funny thing about this memory is this has nothing to do, uh, with, with Pearl Jam, but it took place during the state fair. And so, uh, what happened was when we came out, we were just, everybody was pumped. Everybody was excited about the concert, you know? And, um, I actually have two memories that go with this. Uh, but, but the first was, uh, when we came out of the venue and they had all the, the, uh, uh, fair stuff set up. One of the things they had set up was a bungee jumping thing. And so my friend Andy, somehow we talked him into doing the bungee jumping. And I think he was, uh, Pearl Jam is his favorite band of all time. So maybe he was uh, super excited about it at the time. But uh, this was uh, one of those situations at the fair where you got into a uh, a, a cage that was attached to a crane that lifted you up and then they hooked a bungee thing up to you. And then there was a big inflatable pad underneath just in case things went wrong. Um, but for, uh, I think it was $20. You also got a videotape of yourself bungee jumping. So the guy on the ground had a, a video camera that recorded you bungee jumping. But more importantly, they had a wireless microphone hooked up to you. And so as he's going up being taken up, I don't know how high this thing goes up in the air, you know, five stories, 10 stories. I don't know. It seemed pretty high to me. And I was on the ground. Uh, um, but he's talking and you could hear his voice. Like as the higher he gets, he's like, Hey, can you, can you check that? Make sure that buckle's tight. You know, at one point he goes, oh, this is pretty high, huh? And the guy's like, yep, yep, you know? And, uh, so anyway, he gets up there and the guy counted him down and, and, uh, he, you know, fell backwards out of the cage and did the bungee jump. And, uh, none of the rest of us, uh, were willing to do it, but, but he's the one that pulled it off. Uh, and I remember that he had a Pearl Jam hat that he had bought at the concert and the hat went flying off. And so while he's bouncing around up in the air, he's yelling, Hey, get my hat, find my hat, which of course uh, we've all seen the videotape uh, that he purchased afterwards. And you can hear him yelling for his hat. <laughs> we did eventually, um, uh, find his, his hat, but, um, uh, Anyway, uh, the other memory that I have about this is that when we went to this concert, I was working for Pizza Hut at the time, and Pizza Hut had these little coupons that were uh, rectangular, and they were magnets, and somehow I had ended up with hundreds of these, and so 
what we had done was on the hood of my car, my Ford Festiva, I had uh, m- arranged a bunch of the magnets to look like the Pearl Jam stick guy. I don't even remember if we wrote Pearl Jam or not, but to go to the concert, I essentially had the Pearl Jam guy, you know, on the hood of my car or done with, with pizza hut magnets and people, you know, saw my car and they, they waved and all this and they, people honked and it, it was a really fun memory. And so f- about three days for three days after the concert, I just left those on the hood of my car. Uh, and, um, I remember people like honking and waving and I, and I have a specific memory of pulling up behind a school bus and seeing all the kids, in the back of the school bus, waving and laughing. And I was like, well, they must love the Pearl Jam. And I think it was going to work, maybe, uh, maybe to, to college. But when I got out of my car, I walked by and I looked at the hood. And someone had rearranged all the magnets. And it would, no longer was a picture of the guy from Pearl Jam. They had arranged it into letters that all across the hood of my car said, I'm gay. <laughs> And so I do believe for three days, at least I have been driving around town (laughs) in a little red car with magnets on the hood that said, I'm gay. And so, uh, (laughs) you know, sometimes when you are the end, uh, on the receiving end of a practical joke, you just got to laugh. So I don't know who did that to all my magnets. Um, and I, all I can think of now is all those kids, uh, looking out the back of the school bus and waving and laughing and me thinking that they were Pearl Jam fans (laughs) when in fact they were probably trying to tell me something about my car. But, um, anyway, that is my 18th memory, uh, which was going to see Pearl Jam at the fairgrounds arena in Oklahoma city. memory is uh, number 17 on the list. And this is possibly one or two of the, uh, I believe, no, this is the most recent concert memory that appears on the list. And this was when I went to go see Paul McCartney. I went with my wife and my daughter and we met my aunt Linda who lives in Chicago and my wife was able to get four tickets to go see Paul McCartney at the Tax Slayer Center, which is in uh, right across the border in Illinois. And so, uh, you know, there's there's always people that want to say. Uh, I mean, it's it's easy to say Beatles are the greatest band of all time. And then there are always people that go, oh, the Beatles, they're really not that good. You know, uh, I think those people should probably go watch Get Back, which I have watched the entire thing. And I have every Beatles album. I have probably most Beatles albums, uh, I believe, on CD. I have a bunch on vinyl uh, that I picked up over the years. Uh, but I've been listening to the Beatles uh, since I was a kid, you know. And uh, what what's funny to me is people, I remember, you know, it's, even younger people were like, you know, 
the Beatles, uh, yeah, they did this, but you know, if you want to hear real music, listen, you know, to Nirvana, for example. And if you listen to Nirvana, uh, literally take, um, you know, Nevermind or, or, um, and not in utero so much, but, uh, bleach and in your head, take out the, uh, the distortion and you can, there, those are pop songs. I mean, they are written like Beatles songs, you know, so people argue back and forth, but I mean, the Beatles, the, what they did in the time and, you know, the time period and the amount of time that they did it in is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, uh, you could say whether or not you love their music is almost irrelevant. Uh, you know, it, it's just, they're, they're masters of, um, music. They're masters of writing and performing, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, you could go on and on about the Beatles, but to watch Paul McCartney live and I had never seen Paul McCartney perform live. And frankly, I never thought I would, but we went to this show and to watch Paul McCartney, uh, play bass, which is what he's known for in the Beatles. And then, uh, I would say get bored, but that's not really, this is all, you know, pre pre planned, but to put his bass down and walk over and pick up a guitar and play a guitar and then to put that down and go play a mandolin and then to set that down and walk over and play piano. And then at one point to play, uh, drums. And uh, I mean, there is like, there's so much talent in that man and just watching, uh, you know, there's so many bands that you could watch and you go, wow, they're, they're really good. But to watch a master, uh, perform and, and knowing that those songs, you know, the things that he performed span so many decades. So it wasn't like, uh, I mean, there's a lot of bands that I like that I go, Hey, they got two good songs, you know, but just to, to see a master perform, uh, was amazing. It was, it was a truly amazing. I, I, uh, definitely do not regret going to, uh, uh, that concert at all. So that was uh, number 17 on the list, seeing, uh, Paul McCartney live, um, just a few years ago in 2019. Number 16 on the list was the time that I saw Fugazi perform in a local club. Now, um, I'll tell you right up front, I'm not a fan of Fugazi. I could not name you a single Fugazi song, um, but I was a huge fan of Minor Threat, and Minor Threat was Ian McKay's band before he founded Fugazi. So uh, a friend of mine in middle school made me a copy of Out of Step, which was a Minor Threat album. I wore that cassette out listening to it. I had never heard that sort of punk rock before. Um, and uh, it, it turned me on to a whole new style of music. So I was a huge fan of Minor Threat. I never got into Fugazi but uh, I knew Ian McKay was, you know, the lead singer and lead guitarist of um, Minor Threat. So I definitely wanted to go see Fugazi. So anyway, uh, this show took place in November of 1995 at uh, uh, this local club. And uh, I remember it was cold. And so we were waiting in line, uh, you know, to go in and we, we paid 
Right. I think we, I don't remember if we had tickets or not or whatever, but uh, right inside the door, this is at the Diamond Ballroom, this local place. Right inside the door, they had a phone booth, like an old school style phone booth. And there was a guy in the phone booth um, that almost looked homeless. Like he was wearing a, like a dirty jacket and he had a, uh, one of those winter kind of beanie hats on and he had a backpack and he was digging for change. Uh, to use a payphone. Now, anybody who knows me, I'm always, anytime I see somebody, if I think I can help them, I'll, I'll help them out, you know? And so I knew I had some change in my pocket. And so I reached in, I said, Hey, do you need some change? And he said, yeah. And so I gave the guy a quarter and uh, he went on to make his phone call and we went on into the club. So we watched the opening band, which was a band called Unwound. Uh, and after Unwound was done playing, Fugazi took the stage and I'm staring at the lead singer, which is Ian McKay. And my buddy taps me on the shoulder and says, isn't that the guy you loaned a quarter to? And I said, yeah, it is. That was Ian McKay that was standing in the payphone booth. And so anyway, uh, we've had a longstanding uh, running joke between my friends and I. Anytime that we hear anything, and which is not very often, but anytime we hear anything about Fugazi or Minor Threat or uh, Ian McKay, one of my friends will say, uh, did that guy owe you a quarter? And so that's our running thing is that uh, Ian McKay uh, owes me a quarter. <laughs> so I really couldn't tell you that much about uh, the concert. Or anything else uh, of that nature. But I can tell you that I did uh, loan a quarter. I, I suppose I should say give. Uh, gave a quarter to Ian McKay uh, of uh, Minor Threat and Fugazi. So, Ian, if you're out there listening, uh, by the way, odds of that, 0%. Uh, but if somebody could get a word to him, I'm still waiting for my quarter. <laughs> Number 15 on the list is a show that uh, I probably never would have thought I was going to go to, uh, but I did end up going. And I'm looking at the date, and this is longer ago than I actually thought. This was in 2009, and this was at the Zoo Amphitheater, and this was the show where I went to go see Corn and Slipknot. Now, a friend of mine, Justin, his parents were friends with the people who actually own the zoo amphitheater. I don't know how how that ended up happening, but they are owners or part owners of the zoo amphitheater. And they basically told him they could get free tickets to any show ever. Just let him know and he could have free tickets. Now, I didn't know that or I would have been hitting him up for free tickets for you know years, decades maybe. But uh, he hit me up one day and said, and asked me if I wanted to go see corn and slipknot. And so I have a famous line that I have repeated many times, which is, uh, I like listening to slipknot. I don't like people who listen to slipknot. And so it's kind of a joke. Um, but it's what it is, is, you know, I, I like the heaviness of their music. I like the way a lot of their songs are structured. I find them interesting. I have no interest in being involved, uh, in that, that actual um, scene, whatever you want to call that, right? Um, now, I had been a fan of Korn in uh, their earlier stuff. I liked their first album. I liked their second album. After a while, kind of, you know, I outgrew it, I guess, a little bit. Um, but 
so not only did he get us free tickets to go see Corn and Slipknot, he got us these things that said backstage pass. And so in my head, I thought we're going to be like in the green room eating M&Ms and drinking Avion water with Slipknot or something. Well, that's not exactly how it worked out. And the way it worked out is uh, if you can imagine looking at the front of a stage where bands would perform, uh, even with the stage on the left hand side was a big beer garden. And so having this backstage pass allowed you access to that area. And so my friend and I were able to go in that area and it wasn't free beer. It was, you had to purchase beers and then there were picnic tables and then you could sit and watch the show from that area. But you are literally even with the stage. So you're looking at the side of everyone performing and Slipknot has nine members, so you can't see what everybody's doing. But what was interesting was they had these little, they look like props, like large stage props, but they were hollow on the back. And so every now and then you would see a member of the band go in there and like catch his breath or take a break. So that was kind of interesting. It was, uh, you know, it wasn't watching the show as it was intended to be viewed. It was kind of like a little, uh, you know, behind the scenes view of the concert. So that part of it was pretty cool. But, um, I think we went back out and just sat in the normal area for most of the show because it was a better, better way to watch the show. But I, that's one of the very few times where I ever got any additional uh, access. And I actually had a laminated, I still have it, a laminated pass that says corn and slipknot, you know, backstage access and it has the date and the location of the show. So that's, um, was definitely a, a, a fun memory, Concert memory is going to see Corn and Slipknot and getting those backstage passes. Story number 14 is the time that I went to go see a band called White Trash. Now, White Trash was definitely the definition of a one-hit wonder. They put out an album. They released, I think, just one single. Maybe they had more than one single. But they only had one video that got any play at all on MTV, and it was called Apple Pie. And so I loved this song. It's, it's kind of, if you look at the band, it looks like they put two bands together. There are a few guys that look like they belong in a heavy metal or thrash type band. And then there's a brass section that they called the badass brass. <laughs> there's a guy, uh, you know, with a, there's a trumpet, there's a trombone, whatever. And so, um, they played this song, uh, and it, you know, it doesn't really sound like typical heavy metal, but, um, uh, you know, it's just kind of a fun rock song, uh, and uh, it's comparing this girl to uh, you know apple pie uh, on a uh, on a spring afternoon or summer afternoon, and uh, but the the end of the song, uh, 
because uh, the whole song is at a certain uh, tempo, and at the end of the song, the lead singer says, uh, speed it up. And then everybody's – it's like a little mosh pit in the video. Everybody starts running in circles and bumping into each other, and and, uh, uh, and the song, the last you know few seconds of the song are, are much faster. So – uh, my friend Heather, who I had mentioned, uh, went to the uh, Cinderella concert with me. And my friend Scott, who went to many, many concerts with me over the years. Um, Scott was the guy who was roommates with uh, the uh, guy from the Big Skin Hearts. The three of us found out that White Trash, and I'm sure this is uh, an instance where I found out White Trash was playing and dragged two friends along with me. I can't imagine any of my other friends Really wanted to go see a band called White Trash before, but I definitely wanted to go see them. I loved that song, and uh, I loved – I had the album. I loved all their stuff. Uh, so we go to this club. Uh, it is a tiny club uh, in the middle. I mean, it, it, there's like nothing in this club. There's not even a stage. There's just kind of an area in the corner with a riser. Um, in my notes, I just have that this took place in ni- uh, 1992. I don't even have a date, so I'm not even sure what the club was <laughs> or what the exact date was. Um, but so they weren't on a big stage. They were just on a riser. Maybe there was one step up and then there was the riser, but, but they were right there. And even more embarrassing for the band is that there weren't that many people there. There were maybe 30 or 40 people there. Uh, not a good turnout. And of course, you always feel bad when you're from a place like Oklahoma and a touring band comes and nobody's there, you know, and, and you always have this little awkward, awkward thing where you're like, eh, I wish more people had come. Uh, so anyway, um, I mean, this is less crowded than the house party I went to. <laughs> There's just nobody there. We're all standing around just kind of looking at each other and white trash is, is going through their set. And then eventually... They play um, their song, Apple Pie. I mean, their one-hit song, right? And I'm trying to get people excited. I'm like, all right, and I'm singing along. And, of course, everybody in the band can easily see me. I don't even think – in my head, the lights weren't even dimmed. It was just like playing in a, a club with all the lights on. It's a very, very weird experience. And so um, as you get to the end of the chorus – he says, uh, my, 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 to taste is to die. Uh, you're going to taste like apple pie. And then and then he does the thing where he goes, speed it up. And then the band starts playing really fast and, and the mosh part starts, right? So I don't know why I, um, uh, I felt moved <laughs> to do this. Um, but uh, I decided to, to go on the stage. And so as he's finishing the chorus, I just stepped up on the little step and walked to the front of the stage and nobody stopped me. I mean, when I wasn't on the stage, we were five feet from the lead singer and I walked up there and I sang the last half of the chorus with him. I said, and then we go, speed it up. Like I yell real loud and I, then I staged dived stage dove stage dived i don't know um but the thing is i mean the stage is 18 inches off the ground (laughs) it's not like i'm i'm stage diving like this huge uh you know leap out into a giant crowd i mean there's a dozen people standing there and then i just kind of did this wild flailing leap 
off of this stage to everyone's uh, bewilderment. And I just kind of remember crashing into somebody uh, and then falling to the ground and, uh, and then standing up eventually. And my friend Scott helped me up. And, uh, you know, after a minute or two, I said, Hey, where's Heather? And he said, well, you landed on her. I think you might've killed her. (laughs) What? And he goes, yeah, she ran to the bathroom. Now, Heather, uh, I don't know how tall Heather is five foot eight, maybe five foot nine. And, uh, I mean, maybe a hundred pounds soaking wet, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, a, a very petite, uh, young woman and uh, certainly didn't need a big fat guy uh, jumping and landing on her. <laughs> I'm sure nobody thought I was going to do that either. I didn't know I was going to do it. Um, so anyway, I, I enjoyed the little mosh thing, but uh, um, I definitely have a, uh, <laughs> a funny memory of um, quote unquote stage diving. And by the way, that's not the only time I ever stage dive. There'll be another stage diving story uh, coming up soon, but uh, uh, yeah, jumping off the stage, uh, of the uh, more of a riser at the uh, White Trash Club concert is uh, number 14 of my favorite concert memories. Number 13 on the list was the time that I saw Danzig and White Zombie. Uh, I saw Danzig and White Zombie. Well, I saw White Zombie perform multiple times, believe it or not. Uh, They were touring, you know, constantly. Once they started getting that traction from MTV and Beavis and Butthead played Thunder Kiss 65, which kind of uh, helped them catch their second wind. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden Rob Zombie, it just really propelled them. Uh, but the first time I saw White Zombie was in 1992, November of 1992. And this was at a small club in Oklahoma City called the Rock City Cafe. And they were opening for dancing. And uh, uh, one of my favorite memories of this show is that when White Zombie came out, they opened with Thunder Kiss 65, which would have been the only song everybody there knew. Then they played, I don't know, eight or nine songs, whatever their opening set was. And then at the end of their set, they closed with Thunderkiss 65. They played the same song twice. Um, they opened with it and they closed with it. And I always thought, what a, what a great idea. I mean, this is, as I like to say, giving the people what they want. <laughs> it was definitely a moment where... Uh, I just thought that makes no sense, but nobody cared because that was the only song anybody uh, wanted to hear. But anyway, that was not uh, my favorite memory from that show or not my only memory from that show. Uh, The other memory was after watching Danzig play. Now, Danzig uh, is a divisive, yeah, divisive, I guess, um, uh, character. I mean, there are people, you know, in the, um, late eighties, early nineties, like there was nobody darker and more evil than Glenn Danzig. And of course, uh, you know, I think 
I had discovered Glenn Danzig or Danzig's original album, and people were like, hey, do you not listen to The Misfits? And that's how I discovered The Misfits. So I kind of went backwards in time and, and became a big Misfits fan, or, you know, in like junior, senior kind of year of high school. Uh, and, and while getting into Danzig as well, you know, and, and, uh, especially those first three, maybe four Danzig albums were, uh, first three, let's say were, were really good at the time. But, um, uh, so anyway, we were pretty excited to see Danzig and this is in a, a small club. And, uh, as the show was over, uh, most of the people were thinning out from the crowd and my friend and I were. Uh, just standing there and, and I didn't really realize what was going on, but, uh, my friend was waving at the band, like trying, you know, trying to get their attention or something. And the drummer of Danzig, uh, stood up and threw his drumstick at my friend so that my friend could catch it. But, uh, he missed and I wasn't paying attention. So I was looking at my friend and all of a sudden I got hit in the head with a drumstick. <laughs> I was like, ow, and I grabbed my head. I was like, what was that? And then my friend went down. I was like, Hey, I got a drumstick. So, um, uh, anyway, he got a drumstick and I got a, a bump on my head. So uh, that's really, uh, the takeaway memory that I have of seeing a uh, Danzig and white zombie all the way back in 1992. I can taste you on my lips and smell you in my clothes Cinnamon and sugary and softly spoken lies You never know just how to look through other people's eyes Now this next uh, concert, boy do I have uh, strong memories of this is also uh, way back, 1993, and it's another band with a PG uh, uh, name. So get ready if you've got kids listening, because uh, this was when uh, my wife and uh, my sister went to go see uh, the Stone Temple Pilots, and uh, they were the opening act was the Flaming Lips, and then the headline act was the Butthole Surfers. Now, um, I have a couple of big memories of this, but my, I mean, the big memory takeaway, uh, this was in August of 1993 and it was an outdoor in a park and it was probably a hundred degrees. People were passing out from the heat and the local fire department had come and they began spraying their water hoses up in the air to make this mist that would come down and keep the crowd cool. Uh, but what it did was create this giant muddy lake in the middle where the mosh pit was. And so people started trying to slide on it with their feet and then they were falling. And then they just eventually turned this area into like a giant muddy slip and slide. They were just running and sliding in the mud and thus were born the mud people. So as we're watching this show, we start seeing people that are just covered in from head to toe in mud their hair, their faces, their bodies are all just one color, that reddish brown Oklahoma dirt mud color. Uh, and there are more than a handful. There are dozens and dozens of people. Uh, everybody that's in the pit eventually is, is covered in mud. Uh, so, you know, and, and that kind of ties into another uh, memory that I'll, I'll tell you in just a second. But, uh, 
then when the butthole surfers took the stage, um, it was one of the most bizarre things. You know, I think they had like one or two hits, uh, you know, who was in my room and, um, Oh, what was the other one? The, the coming down the mountain, whatever that song is, uh, not, not the Jay's addiction one, but, uh, pepper, pepper. That was the name of it. Um, anyway, uh, so they were playing their show, and if you've never seen them, they had large screens behind them that were showing um, rotating clips of eye surgery and people that had been injured. I mean, it was a very, very uh, strange concert experience. And right towards the end of the concert, I mean, at the very end of the finale, someone took their shoe off and threw it at the stage and hit the lead singer of uh, of the band in the head. And... Uh, now I had seen, you know, the ugly kid Joe incident. I know this doesn't go well. Bands typically don't like to be hit in the head with things. And the, uh, lead singer took the microphone and he said, who threw that shoe? And people were pointing and he said, security. And then he said, give that guy a backstage pass. That guy could party with us tonight. And so I never heard you know sometimes there are stories you don't really know how they end i don't know what ended up happening i don't know if they if the guy really got a pass and maybe they beat him up back there i don't know (laughs) but um but that was just a surreal memory that i had of that night the other memory that i had was this concert took place in tulsa which is a two-hour drive from oklahoma city and it's all turnpike and in between the exact middle of the turnpike uh, between Tulsa and Oklahoma City is a 24-hour rest stop McDonald's. And so on the way home, we were driving and uh, we stopped at McDonald's, parked. And as we're walking in, there are muddy footprints in the parking lot, muddy footprints on the sidewalk. And when we walked in, there were the mud people. <laughs> All the mud people from the concert had stopped at McDonald's and it was in the dining room, just people that were covered from head to toe in mud sitting there eating cheeseburgers. It was a very, very surreal um, memory and and view, one that I will never forget. So the mud people uh, would be the uh, concert memory I have from Stone Temple Pilots, the butthole servers and the flaming lips. That was number 12 on the list. Number 11 on the list is a band that nobody on this podcast has ever heard of. They're called Toti Moshi. Uh, and this was in 2003, in the summer of 2003. I got to see Toti Moshi at this small club. Uh, at that time, it was called the Green Door. Uh, they've uh, announced the conservatory. But um, I was doing a lot of band reviews online at the time I was reviewing concerts. I was reviewing CDs and I had 
communicated with this band. They were coming to Oklahoma City with some other bands. And uh, so I remember, like, I'd hit them up beforehand, and I said, hey, I'm coming to the show, and uh, I'm going to take pictures. I'm going to write a review. And they said, great. So um, anyway, I went to the show, and I don't remember who all uh, – there were it was one of those where there was like three or four bands, you know, uh, and they weren't going on until later. But when I saw them walk in, I recognized them, and I had everybody else was kind of on the uh, the stage in front of the stage area, and I had moved over to the side, and there was this little corner restaurant booth, so I was sitting in the restaurant booth, and I I said, oh hey, uh, and I waved, and and uh, the lead singer and guitarist is Tony, and the, and the bass player is Meg, which was his. Uh, I don't know if it's his wife or significant other, but uh, they were a couple. And so I waved, and I said, oh hey, I'm I'm Rob. I'm the guy that told you I was gonna to, you know review the show, and they were like, oh yeah, and then they said, hey, can we put our stuff here? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess. And uh, they said, we're, we're just going to go get some water and stuff. And I go, okay. And so they left and they came back and they said, is it okay if we, we sit here? And I'm like, yeah. And so, you know, there's there's this perception when you're a kid that, you know, the bands are they, you know, like – and, and I think part of this perception comes from watching like major label bands. Like, uh, you know, I tend to think like if I saw Metallica or, you know, if I saw some, uh, I don't know, Taylor Swift somewhere and I started talking, they probably wouldn't have the time of day for me, you know. But as I started getting into um, not major label bands, you know, and, and more offbeat kind of music and stuff that wasn't as popular and actually started talking to these musicians and found out just how normal most of these people were. And so, uh, I sat there and, you know, we had a long talk about music and about their music that they, they were performing and, and, um, just bands and, and, you know, music we'd been listening to and stuff. I had an absolutely great time. And I, and I'm sure that to them, uh, and, and I, you know, I still, I follow them on Facebook and I occasionally interact with them and, and I say, Oh, I was the guy from Oklahoma and they go, Oh yeah, I remember you. But, um, you know, to me, it was a special moment because they, uh, you know, had just sat down and, and to me, you know, just sitting down with a band and talking to them was, you know, just this, this crazy experience to them, you know, it was probably a Thursday. You know what I mean? Like this is not out of the ordinary. Uh, they were on the road. They were probably tired and they were just, you know, looking for a place, you know, someplace where they could set their backpack down uh, where somebody wasn't going to steal their stuff and uh, uh, wanted to go get some bottles of water and stuff. So, uh, but I had a really good time talking to Tony Moshi. I wrote a review of that concert one time uh, and I didn't phrase what I said the way I meant it. And, and I think what I said was, they are like only the good parts of the Melvins. And what I meant was, and I think that maybe caused some grief at some point in time, uh, just because they didn't want to offend the Melvins. And I, and I get that. Uh, but what I meant by that was, you know, the Melvins, like when they're good, they're really good. Um, but they have so many albums and songs that are just experimental noise that are really, not palatable to most people. And 
And Tony Moshi is like all the stuff that I liked from the Melvins. And that's probably how I should have worded it. They're the more, I won't say um, mainstream, but the more, like, they are the best parts of the accessible parts of the Melvins is probably how I should have worded that. But either way, uh, if you're not a fan, and um, uh, Tony Moshi has since uh, changed their name. Uh, They're a new band now uh, called All Souls. And uh, it's still fantastic. And, you know, the problem with doing that is that you have so many followers with your old branding that I get it that they wanted to, uh, you know, break from that idea and and form a new band. But it's such, you know, I I think they're still active under the, the, like, through social media, you can still find them under the name Toadie Moshi, but, which is all one word, uh, T-O-T. I M O S H I. I think that's right. Uh, Tony Moshi, but, um, you can also find them under all souls, which is their new, uh, band, but, um, yeah, great, great people. And just uh, such a fun memory of just sitting down and, and, uh, you know, not being like journalist and band or not being fan and, and famous musicians, but just being a group of guys, uh, and gal to sit down and, and have this big conversation about music was just a, a really fun experience. Well, we're breaking the top 10 now. And number 10 uh, was not that long ago. And this uh, comes from 2019 as well. But this is before Paul McCartney. Uh, and this was the show where I went to go see the Pixies followed by Weezer. Now, uh, I had discovered the Pixies in probably 2018. I was a really, really late person to find the Pixies. And I remember people referring me or, you know, recommending the Pixies to me uh, during grunge, during all that time. And I'm surely must have seen one of their videos or something on Alternative Nation or something like that. But um, but for some reason, it just passed me by. And so it wasn't about uh, until about 2018, I think that I discovered the Pixies and then I did a huge deep dive into the Pixies. Uh, I just, just got, you know, like the first three, four albums, whatever. I got Frank Black solo stuff. I got all this stuff, uh, and just listened to it constantly for, you know, a couple of months, just really got into it. And so I have to say that I was not particularly a fan of Weezer. I knew the radio hits, you know, whatever, uh, you know, I knew the Buddy Holly song because I had Windows 95 and had the video on it. Um, so was not that interested in going to see Weezer. Was super interested in going to see the Pixies. Uh, we get to the show and the Pixies, which apparently this is their concert shtick that they are well known for, uh, is that they play when they play on stage, all the members of the band stand in one place. They don't move. There is no stage banter. There is no talk. Uh, I can't remember if they introduced the songs and said the song title or not. It was one of the most boring concerts I've ever been to. I love the music. 
I still love the music and I love listening to the albums, but as far as concerts go, it was a snooze fest. And then Weezer came out. Weezer had animated backdrops of different scenes. Like when they played Buddy Holly, it looked like uh, the uh, uh, Al's Restaurant from Happy Days. Um, as they played other songs, it changed. At one point, the lead singer, uh, River Cuomo, I believe, uh, got into like a fake rowboat that was mounted on top of uh, almost like a, an AV cart, and people wheeled him to the other side of of the venue, and he played acoustic songs to the backside of the crowd uh, where everybody had to turn around and look the other way. Uh, it was one of my favorite concerts of all times. And I, I tell people to this day, like I went to that show as a Pixies fan and I left that show as a Weezer fan. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if, if Weezer is like that all the time in concert. I don't know. Uh, but I mean, if you're a remote fan of Weezer and you have a chance to see them live, uh, I highly recommend it. It was uh, one of my favorite concerts of all time, to be honest with you. It was a really, really good concert. That was my number 10 concert memory going and see, uh, going to see the Pixies and Weezer. Number nine was seeing Metallica. Now, I have seen Metallica several times. I want to say three, maybe four times. Uh, and the I don't know why I would do that, because uh, every time you see Metallica, it's exactly the same. <laughs> I mean, they, they do their songs. For the most part, they do the same songs. It's not like people aren't dying to hear whatever new Metallica songs are. People want to hear you know, one and for whom the bell tolls and creeping death, you know. Um, but I saw Metallica in 1992, in January of 1992. This is when, this was the first time I saw them, and this is when they were supporting the Black Album. So the Black Album had just come out the previous summer. And this was the show where Metallica had no opener. They basically had a long video that they showed before the show, like a half hour video on this big screen that, that hung in the middle of the Cox convention center, but there was no opening act. It was just Metallica. And, um, of course this was when Jason Newstead was still with the band and just absolutely fantastic show. Um, you know, I had, had, uh, I think I started listening to Metallica around Master of Puppets. I didn't, you know, I wasn't like a, a day one guy, but I think I found Master of Puppets and then I went back and then uh, it was really like right in that little era between uh, Master of Puppets and the Garage Days EP, like right around the time. I probably, well, I know that I had seen kids at school wearing Metallica shirts, but probably when Cliff uh, died in the bus accident, is would have been when it was on the news and and that probably was enough to get me to to start listening to Metallica um so I was a fan by the time Injustice for All came out and so when the black album came out uh I, I was a big fan and so that was 
you know, um, you know, not everybody loves Metallica, um, and, and Metallica, I mean, it really seems like to me, like there was that early peak, um, and I sound like one of these jaded fans, but there was the early peak and then it's been downhill for uh, a decade or, you know, maybe two decades, something like that. But, uh, you know, there, there was just that time where they were number one, they were on top of the game and, uh, uh to see them firing on all cylinders and to see them with Jason, uh, was, was just a, a super great show. So that is my number nine, um, concert memory was, uh, seeing Metallica. I met him in a swamp down in Dagobah Where it bubbles all the time like a giant carbonated soda S-O-D-A soda I saw the little wrench sitting there on a log I asked him his name and in a raspy voice he said Yoda Y-O-D-A Yoda Yo, 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 Yoda Number eight uh, is an artist that I have seen uh, several times. I have them uh, on my list. I have him on my list three times. Uh, and so this could really be any of those shows. I don't have a, a specific memory other than getting to see him. And that is the one and only Weird Al Yankovic, who I saw uh, the first time in uh, 2003. And I guess this is how I would uh, I would say my memory goes. In 2003, I went to go see Weird Al with a friend. Um, and then in 2008, I went and saw Weird Al again, and this time I took Mason. And Mason absolutely loved the show. And in 2013, all four of us, uh, my wife and I and both the kids, went and saw Weird Al Yankovic. Weird Al obviously puts on a very um, family-friendly show. Uh if you've never seen, uh, you know, he has some concert DVDs, uh, you know, there are certain things that he does at concert that he doesn't do that aren't on his albums, like the Yoda chant and things like that. Uh, the, the last time we saw him, they perform, he performs Yoda and then he, uh, does the, um, uh, Star Wars song to the tune of, um, American pie, my, my, this here, uh, Anakin guy. Um, and, uh, he had members of the local uh, 501st Legion, which is the Star Wars uh, fan group that make uh, movie-accurate costumes. Those guys showed up, so there were stormtroopers and stuff on stage. I mean, it was a really fun show. Of course, he dresses up in all the costumes, like uh, the fat suit when he performs uh, Fat, which is a parody of uh, Michael Jackson's Bad, and and he dresses up like Kurt Cobain when he does Smells Like Nirvana, all, all those sorts of things. There are video clips. I mean, it is just a a action and fun show from the minute it starts to the minute it ends. Uh, an absolutely fantastic show. Anytime you get a chance to see Weird Al again, um, you know, I, I know that um, he has slowed down in releasing things. I think I read a thing that said the last album he did, he said he wasn't going to do albums anymore. He was just going to do singles. And I haven't really heard any singles lately. So, but I know that the, he is uh biography, the film that they are uh, filming will be coming out uh, maybe this year or next year. So I'm excited to see that. But anyway, number eight concert memory is just seeing weird Al uh, and uh, the great, great show he puts on.
seven memory I have is of the Melvins. Now I uh, saw the Melvins for the first time in 1995. It was at the uh, uh, arena at the state fair and it was the Melvins with white zombie and Reverend Horton heat, uh, which is a really odd tour combination. If you think about it Uh, and the Mel, well, Reverend Horton heat opened and then the Melvins came on and people were cheering for white zombie and shouting white zombie. And uh, the Melvins said, hey, here's a song we have, and it's called 45 Minutes of Feedback. And so they basically put their instruments, leaned them up against the amplifiers, which just caused them to generate feedback. And then they walked off the stage. And I was so heartbroken because I knew they were doing it just to punish Oklahoma and punish the crowd. But I was there to see the Melvins. I wanted to see the Melvins. And so I, I was really upset at the time uh, that they did that but eventually the sound soundboard people turned off the sound and and everybody waited and then white zombie came on so that that was it for the melvins it was it was not an enjoyable experience but uh years later in 2009 the melvins uh came back and played the conservatory it's the same place i mentioned the green door uh and uh i got to stand you know second or third row stand right up front watch the melvins i believe this is when during their tour they had two drummers uh so they had a a left-handed drummer and a right-handed drummer so they had two drum kits and they were both i mean absolutely i mean the melvins are are heavy and loud anyway but being in a club and then with two drummers like that was uh quite the experience so uh again when i started the list i was saying that uh uh, I'm dying to go see the Melvins once again, and that'll be the uh, split. Although I, I think they're they're past that uh, point of uh, punishing audiences. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, seeing the Melvins number seven on the list. My number six concert memory was when I got to go see Slayer. Now, uh, I had, uh, I'm, I'm friends, uh, with a, with a lady named Emily at work and I used to be friends. I mean, I'm not that I'm not friends. She's just not a coworker anymore, uh, with a, a coworker named Paula and Paula happened to be dating a local radio disc jockey at the time. And so he said, I could get us tickets to go see Slayer. And this is when Slayer was playing. Um, this is at the Bricktown Event Center. So this is not a big place that has chairs. This is a smaller event place. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I would love to go see Slayer. And so um, uh, me and these two coworkers and the disc jockey guy, um, all went to this Slayer show. Um, we probably could have got a ticket for my wife. My wife does not want to go see Slayer. <laughs> 
And so um, my memory takeaway is that Slayer had so many amplifiers crammed into this concert arena. I mean, they could have played like North America with how many amps they had. And they were playing this relatively small uh, event area. And uh, I have gone to concerts before and come out with my ears ringing, which when I was a kid, I used to think was a uh, a bragging right. But, and now I'm like, oh, it turns out that's that's um, the sign of, of permanent hear loss, uh, hearing loss. That, that's why um, now I can't hear anything because I would go to these concerts and stand in front of speakers and thought it was awesome. Uh, but I will tell you that after seeing Slayer in that place, my ears ring for two days. Um, that, that's really the last concert I ever went to where I didn't take some sort of earplugs with me, uh, because it was, it was so loud that it hurt. And, uh, I mean, that is really my takeaway memory. Now I will never forget watching Slayer, uh, sit there and play rain and blood, you know, in just the loudest possible thing. And I was there with three people who wanted to go to a concert but weren't necessarily Slayer fans. Like nobody that I was there with knew the words to South of heaven, <laughs> which I do. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, for me, it was just, just a great memory. And, and my memory really of that is just how unbelievably loud, uh, that show was. And by the way, uh, Paula broke up with that DJ and he and I were friends on Facebook and then he unfriended me and I haven't spoken to him since. And it really hurt my feelings. Um, so fooey on that guy. Cause I thought we were, <laughs> I thought we had a thing. Um, but, uh, apparently we didn't. Wah, wah. Number five, concert memory uh, is of two, a classic band and a classic performer. Uh, this was going to see Motley Crue in a huge convention center in 2014 with opening act Alice Cooper. Now, I had never seen Alice Cooper perform live, and I get it that Alice Cooper from the 70s uh, is different than seeing Alice Cooper in 2014. Um, but Alice Cooper's stage show is like a cross between, I mean, it's almost like a, a horror movie and a roller coaster. And I mean, it's a slick production. He did all the famous sticks. He had the giant guillotine. He came out in a straight jacket, just all the things that he is known for. Um, an absolutely fun, entertaining show, uh, and the music was spot on. Uh, Alice Cooper, absolutely fantastic. Uh, and then we got to see Motley Crue. Now, Vince Neil specifically in recent years has just really taken a beating in the press. Uh, you know, they've we keep seeing these videos, and somehow, like every video is of him singing terribly. And then they do another video and you go, well, I didn't think that could get worse, but somehow it did. Uh, you know, but when I went to the show, the reason I went was not 
to see Alice Cooper. Uh, I mean, that was a great uh, side side uh, benefit of going. But it was because this was the Motley Crue farewell tour. And Mo- this was when Motley Crue signed their their contract that said a cessation of touring contract that said they will never, ever, ever again tour under the name Motley Crue. And uh, uh, they made a big deal about it. Now, we all know that that's a bunch of BS PR stuff, you know, but – but they really did seem sincere, and um, not only was this their farewell tour, um, but – now, this is going to start sounding weird, but bear with me. I was a fan of Motley Crue since the first album. I mean, in the early 80s, my neighbor had Motley Crue, uh, the first tape, and I got a copy of it. So, I mean, when I was 10 or 11 years old – in the like 82, 83, I was listening to Motley Crue. And so, you know, it was something kind of cathartic. Like, I don't know the members of Motley Crue. They don't know who I am. They don't care who I am. But seeing those four guys just basically saying, you know, this is the end, goodbye. And I mean, it was emotional. I cried at the end of the show. They played Home Sweet Home while they showed this slideshow of their childhood photos and of them growing up and then basically retiring. And they came out and they cried and they took bows and that was it. And it was like this thing in my heart where I said goodbye to Motley Crue. And, um, you know, after that concert, all these things came out that said, boy, the guys from Motley Crue really hate each other. Um, you know, there were these articles that came out afterwards from Tommy Lee, where he said, I went backstage. Tommy Lee's a drummer, Motley Crue, if you don't know, uh, he, he went backstage for the after party and nobody was there. Everybody just left. They didn't even want to say goodbye to each other. They didn't, uh. Uh, that was when their their very last show in Hollywood or in L.A., you know. Um, and so it was this thing where they were like, yeah, we don't text each other. You know, I think Tommy Lee, there's an interview with him like a year after their final show. And he said, I haven't heard from anybody else in the band. Like, that's it. We just stopped talking. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they were throwing these barbs back and forth. And, of course, there had been hard feelings since they had fired Vince Neil and Vince Neil come back. I mean, Molly Crew is really uh, uh, just – a cesspool of drama. Um, and then, you know, the dirt, I had read the book, the dirt, but then the dirt, they made it into a movie. It came out on Netflix and they got this taste. And all of a sudden they got this new generation of fans, like this old Netflix generation of kids that were discovering Motley Crue for the first time. And now they're buying Motley Crue albums. And then Motley Crue said, you know what? We were just kidding. We're going to go back on a stadium tour again. And I just got really furious. And again, Motley Crue doesn't owe me anything, but I just got really upset over the fact that they said 100%, we swear we're signing a thing. This is the end of the band. And, and I I think I'm mad at myself maybe for believing them. Uh, but, um, they are going back out on tour. They were supposed to go in 2020 and then COVID hit. And so, uh, they canceled the show and apparently they're, they're rescheduled for 2022. So we'll see. Uh, They have this huge, uh, not just national tour, but international tour planned with Def Leppard and Joan Jett. And I can tell you that I won't be there. Uh, and, and this is coming from a guy that, um, has a big Motley Crue tattoo on his back. Not really. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't really have a Molly Crew tattoo. <laughs> Just see it if you're still listening. Um, but uh, I do have Molly Crew albums on vinyl, and I still have probably the cassettes out in my garage, and I have them on CD, and I have them on my phone, and I still listen to the music. And um, I've seen every video they've released, every home video, and I've I've uh, you know seen them in concert a few times. But but to me, like we shared this moment where we all said goodbye and I let it go. And to me, I said goodbye. And, uh, you know, them coming back seems like a money grab and disingenuous. And I mean, they're not the first band to do that. I went to see, uh, the next performer during, uh, his farewell tour. And then I saw him again later. (laughs) So he's certainly not the first band in history to ever do that. But, um, uh, for me, it was a cathartic thing and I let it go. And so for them to come back, I, I can't, I can't go back. So anyway, uh, seeing the farewell tour of Motley Crue is my number five top 25 concert memory. favorite concert memory was going and taking my wife to her first heavy metal concert. Now, my wife did not go to a lot of concerts uh, when she was younger, but uh, after we we moved in together and we were engaged and uh, actually we were married by the time this concert came through, I said, I want to go to this concert and uh, you should go with me. And it is uh, the band Typo Negative is the opening band. Uh, the uh, middle band is called Sepultura. And the headliner is the one and only Mr. Ozzy Osbourne. Now, uh, Typo Negative, I should just say, is a band that I did not care for for many, many years. And as much as I disliked uh, typo negative. And I like typo negative. Now I have albums and stuff, but, uh, as much as I disliked them at the time, I think I saw typo negative like four times or something like they were constantly touring and opening for all these other bands that I ended up seeing. So I just, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't go out of my way to see them. And I kept seeing typo negative, um, Sepultura. I wanted to see, I had got their album chaos AD, and then they came out with the album roots. Um, not to make you a, a you know a, a total info dump on Sepultura, but Sepultura is a heavy metal band from Brazil, and on their album Roots, they actually went to these jungle areas and primitive areas, and they incorporated drums and chants and stuff from uh, these tr- Brazilian tribes into the album. So it is. Um, uh, Almost, I mean, I don't want to say spiritual type album, but it just incorporates uh, a lot of stuff into that type of heavy music. It's a uh, uh, was really a game changer for me at the time hearing that kind of music. And then, of course, you had Ozzy Osbourne, and Ozzy Osbourne uh, was. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, I I was too young to have seen Black Sabbath. Uh, but then, of course, Ozzy Osbourne went solo. And now this was when he put together a touring band. And um, so his band at that time consisted of uh, Zach Wilde 
on guitar. Uh, the bass player was Rob Trujillo, who went on to join Metallica, and the uh, drummer was Puffy from Faith No More. And so, uh, I mean, it was like an all-star band. And, uh, you know, this was before... Uh, the Osbournes TV show long before that. And so Ozzy kind of, he still had this air of, um, you know, evil. Like everybody knew the, the bat story. Everybody knew all these stories about Ozzy. Um, and so I think my wife was a little hesitant about going, but she left, uh, like I, I converted her to my kind of music, you know, I mean, I forced her to listen to all the garbage I listened to over the years anyway, but, um, you know, she left that show an Aussie fan and more important to me, she left that show a Sepultura fan. That <laughs> was like a big turning point for her, but just being able to go, um, all the bands were on point that night, uh, and, and being able to go to my first metal concert with my wife, uh, and her to enjoy it was uh, a great memory. And so that's why Ozzy Osbourne, Sepultura and Typo Negative are number four. Uh, on my list of concert memories. Number three. You in the jungle, baby! Wake up! Time to die! is a band that I have seen uh, more times than most people would assume, uh, and that is Guns N' Roses. Now, I have seen Guns N' Roses. um, You know, I'm looking at my list here. I saw them uh, in Oklahoma City in 2019. One of my good friends, Tim, is a huge Guns N' Roses fan. And so uh, four out of the five times that I have seen Guns N' Roses has been with Tim and his wife uh, and my wife. The four of us have all gone. And we went, uh, we saw uh, Guns N' Roses in Tulsa in 2017 uh, for Tim's 40th birthday. We all went to Vegas in 2012 and we saw uh, Guns N' Roses when they were doing their residency at the uh, Hard Rock Cafe in Vegas. And we also saw Guns N' Roses together in 2011 in Norman uh, with uh, Hinder opening. Uh, by the way, in the uh, Tulsa show, you could find a clip of that show uh, in 2017. Dave Grohl. Uh, the Foo Fighters were playing the next night or had played the previous night, one or the other. And Dave Grohl came out and played guitar on Paradise City. Uh, and it was, it was a huge, uh, you know, deal for the crowd. It was really exciting. But my memory, my biggest memory of Guns N' Roses was the first time I saw them, which was in April of 1992. Now, this was after Appetite for Destruction had come out and was right around the time that Use Your Illusions 1 and 2 uh, had come out. Now, uh, the the earliest memory uh, or the first memory 
that I have of this show is actually of the opening band, which was Smashing Pumpkins. Now, Smashing Pumpkins in 1992 was not the Smashing Pumpkins that we know today. Uh, they only had one album at the time, and they had one or two songs uh, that were playing on 120 minutes and on alternative radio. They were not mainstream. Uh, nobody at that place, except for me. I was the only guy out of 20,000 people that knew who the Smashing Pumpkins were. Okay, that's an exaggeration. But um, people were not there for Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, and people were chanting during the opening set, guns and roses, guns and roses. And so um, uh, the lead singer of uh, the Smashing Pumpkins stopped the show. And he said, you know what? Uh, here is a new song. We've been working on this is Billy Corgan, you know, very famous now. Uh, here's a new song we uh, have been working on, and we would like to dedicate it to all the drunk rednecks out there in the crowd. And they just start making the loudest noise they can with their instruments, just, you know, loud noise and shouting F you, F you over and over until they cut the sound. People are booing and throwing stuff and Smashing Pumpkins walked off the stage. Uh, again, it was one of those situations where I was there specifically to see the Smashing Pumpkins. I mean, I don't know if it, I mean, not, not only the Smashing Pumpkins, but I wanted to see the Smashing Pumpkins, uh, and nobody else did. <laughs> and so if you, if you're familiar with the history of Guns N' Roses, you know that Axl Rose, uh, and the band in general was fairly unstable in the late, uh, 80s and early 90s. There's no telling. And that was part of the excitement. Uh, I mean, that's my biggest memory is just the excitement of Guns N' Roses. Like, um, they might not come out at all. They, they might be an hour late. They might be two hours late. They might come out and start a fight. They might jump into the crowd and start a fight with people. You just, you didn't know what you were getting with Guns N' Roses back then for sure. And so, uh, Guns N' Roses, did not come out for three hours. It was a three hour delay as people were standing around, you know? And so, uh, during, you know, uh, if you've ever been to like a professional sporting game, by the way, this story is going to be PG 13 as well. Eh, PG. Um, if you've been to sporting events, you know how they have the kiss cam and they point the, um, the camera at people and then they kiss and then they're like, ha 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 kiss cam. Um, they kind of started doing that because they, they had these big screens for the concert and they had people doing cameras and they started pointing the cameras at people, uh, at the, at the concert and specifically women. And then people started chanting for these women to flash the camera. And so, uh, that's what they did. So for me and my friends, uh, at, you know, 1992, and let's see, this is, uh, uh, April of 1992. So I was, uh, 18 years old. Very exciting show. <laughs> Me and my 18 year old friends. Uh, and this went on for an hour of just cameras pointing at people, uh, at ladies, young women and ladies and people chanting for them to flash their flash the camera, um, until they did. And then the camera would point at somebody else. And if they didn't, everybody would boo. And, and, uh, you know, um, in a retrospect, yikes, probably, uh, something that, uh, at, at, uh, best would get you 
mentioned on the news and worst, uh, probably gets canceled. <laughs> but um, at the time, that was the place, that was the crowd, and that's what happened. So uh, we killed, and I say we collectively, you know, 20,000 people killed three hours doing the wave and singing songs in the crowd and, and eating hot dogs and doing whatever. And then eventually guns and roses did take the stage. Um, this entire concert is available on YouTube. I have looked it up before. Uh, I actually purchased a bootleg of it. And then later it, someone uploaded it to, uh, to YouTube. So you can watch, uh, there's a very famous, um, in guns and roses lore where, where Axl Rose stops in the middle of the concert and gives a, you know, 15 or 20 minute speech about random things. And then the, you know, it, it feels like at some point he might be canceling the show, but eventually the show goes on. And, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, basically uh, smashing pumpkins, cursing us out and then guns and roses going on late. And of course the intermission between the two big concert memory for me, that is number three on my memories of concerts. My number two favorite concert memory of all time was uh, getting to see the band Life of Agony and not only see the band of Life of Agony, but interview Life of Agony. Now, again, this was during a time where I was uh, doing a lot of writing online, interviewing bands, talking to bands, and I had emailed Life of Agony, who said they were touring and they were going to be playing at uh, Oklahoma City at the Diamond Ballroom, and I emailed them and asked if I could interview them, and they said yes. Be there, uh, you know, whatever it was, an hour or two hours before showtime or whatever, and uh, I I could do an interview. And so uh, we went there. My wife and I went, and their tour bus was parked uh, to the side of the Diamond Ballroom, and we walked up. There was a security guard, that guy there, and I was like, hey, I'm supposed to interview him, and he knocked, and they verified, and and they let me in, and so I went right on Life of Agony's tour bus. Uh, the drummer is Sal, gosh, I can't think of his last name now, um, but Sal, uh, eventually, he, he, I think he quit Life of Agony and went to Typo Negative and then went to another band or something, but he, he uh, uh, Eventually just left altogether. But, uh, uh, and then the, uh, lead singer, uh, was, uh, a Keith, uh, Caputo at the time, uh, was not on the bus or if, or, uh, if he was, he was not where I could see him or find him. Uh, but the, uh, in the back of the bus in the big giant lounge area was, uh, Joey Z, who's the lead guitarist and Alan Robert, uh, who's the bassist and who wrote, uh, the two of them wrote all the music and Alan Robert wrote all the lyrics. So they were really kind of the, the core of the band. Uh, and, uh, I don't remember what they said. I think they said I had like 30 minutes to interview them or something. And so we were talking and at 30 minutes, the security guy, we were just having a good time just talking about music and, uh, 
this was at a time where they had lost their major label deal and had basically funded their own tour to go back out. And so I was like, man, I want to help you promote your stuff, you know, and, and tell me. And this was um, 2004, and Alan Robert was doing their website from the road. So he was blogging uh, at, you know, he was dialing up internet and uh, from the bus. And, and uh, so we talked a lot about, you know, technology and stuff. And uh, at the half hour moment, the security guy came up and he's like, hey, your time's up. And they were like, no, 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 he's cool. Just uh, we're, we're just chatting. And so the security guy was like, are you sure? And they're like, yep. And uh, I think he even came back a second time and they were like, hey, we're almost done. You know, but like the security guy wanted me to leave and the band wanted me to stay. And so we talked for like almost an hour. And whenever we left, uh, I got a picture of me and the guys on the tour bus. And then they gave me a press pass. So uh, and, and the security guy said, you know, there's like a, at the concert, there's like the stage and then there's the big gap where the security bars are and then the, the security bars are in the crowd, right? The, 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 the gate, the fence. And so he said, with that pass, I was allowed to stand in that area. And he said, you get pictures for the first three songs and then you got to go. And he's like, if you don't leave, I'm going to punch you in the head and throw you. I was like, dude, I'm not going to, like, what am I going to do? I said, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they must have to deal with a lot of jerks, you know, but I was like, no problem. And so I stood up there and, uh, and took pictures and, and just had a, a cool time. I had purchased their DVD at the time I brought it. I was like, I know this is, I hate to do this, but if you guys would sign this or something, and then I could give it away on the website and they're like, oh yeah. And, and uh, they all signed it. And, uh, so anyway, I have, uh, over on my shelf, you know, I got rid of 99% of my DVDs, but I kept a few. And this is one that I kept. I have their DVD of their concert. Uh, it's autographed by all the guys in the band. And inside the DVD, there are uh, my concert tickets and my press pass that I received. Uh, and um, somewhere I have all the pictures and stuff. And I definitely have that interview. Um, but it was uh, just what, a, you know, Life of Agony was a band that I I found on MTV on Headbangers Ball, I'd followed them, and uh, it, it was really like, I mean, I don't want to say like meeting your heroes, because they're not a hero, but, you know, as far as at that time, like like bands, they were like one of my top three bands, you know, and so to be able to to meet them and hang out on their tour bus and interview them and do all that stuff and, and actually do some work with them and stuff was uh, just a super good memory, and that's why it is number two on my list. My number one concert memory, I'm kind of cheating here because I have a couple of different memories 
of this band that took place at different concerts, but I'm going to bundle them all together here. Uh, but this was uh, seeing Pantera. And so my first, the first time I saw Pantera um, was in May of 1991. Uh, they had just released Cowboys from Hell, which was their first um, and you get into weird stuff when you talk about Pantera and their first album because they had previous albums with a different style of music like a hair metal and they had some other albums with a different singer. But this was their major label, their first, you know, what people call the beginning of Pantera. This is Cowboys from Hell. But they were not opening. I mean, they were not headlining. They were opening for another band called Wrath Child America. And what's funny is I did not know who Pantera was at this time. I knew who Wrathchild America was. Now, Pantera is from Arlington, Texas. Uh, the Abbott brothers are from Arlington. And uh, um, so when they were trying to gain traction as a band, they played all over Texas and all over Oklahoma. So Pantera played Oklahoma clubs a lot. I mean, multiple times a year. I mean, probably half a dozen times a year or more. Uh, they were always up in Oklahoma. Now, I had found the band Wrathchild America uh, and uh, uh, was a big fan of them. They were kind of thrash metal, but but a little bit more advanced. Uh, they had they were really good. In fact, the drummer uh, from Wrathchild America quit and is now the drummer of um, Godsmack. Um, but the other guys, just over a while, they put out two albums as Wrathchild America. They reformed. They put out two albums and an EP as Souls at Zero, which might ring a bell. And then they just broke up. But this was during their very first album. I was a big fan of Wrathchild America. And so we went and they said this opening band is called Pantera. Pantera played the most crazy, wild show, bar none, that I've ever seen. Um, they encouraged stage diving. At one point, there are four members of Pantera on the stage and probably 20 people from the crowd who are jumping around and diving into the stage. It was a never ending sea of people going up onto the stage, jumping off the stage, um, and doing all this. Uh, my friend Jeff was with me as was Andy and, uh, someone jumped off the stage. And when he did, we were in the front row. Uh, the guy's foot got caught in the neck portion of Jeff's shirt. And as the guy went down, it ripped Jeff's shirt all the way down to his belly button. This is like a t-shirt. <laughs> so imagine, you know, a V-neck t-shirt, except for the V goes down to your belly button. That's what Jeff's shirt looked like. Um, I have a VHS bootleg of this show. It is crazy. It is unbelievable. Just the energy. I mean, when we saw that band and don't get me wrong, I loved wrath child America and we watched that show. I bought a Pantera cassette at that show. And when we left, I remember this to this day, I put in the tape and the beginning of Cowboys from hell opens and it has this guitar riff and it's weird. It's kind of processed. Uh, it almost sounds like it's looped. And when that song started playing, I pulled over. I was like, I have to focus on this song. I have to hear this song, you know? And we sat there in the car on the side of the road and listened to that song. It was unbelievable. Um, 
it was one of those moments where you just instantly go, these guys are going to be huge. They're going to be famous. They're going to be the biggest band in the world. And, you know, and maybe they weren't the biggest band in the world, but in heavy metal circles, they were, you know, top three, top five, whatever, uh, for as long as, as they stayed together. Now, Pantera's troubles are, are, um, long and well-documented. And of course now two of the members have passed away and the other two don't get along. So the, uh, uh, odds of a Pantera reunion are, are now over. Um, I did see Phil Anselmo and the illegals, which was his backing band in 2018. Uh, they came to perform and, uh, this was right. Uh, I don't remember if, if the, uh, if Vinnie Paul from, uh, Pantera, the drummer had passed away yet. Uh, yeah, but, uh, Dimebag was already, was, had already passed away. And this was at a time where he, where, uh, Phil was only performing a couple of Pantera songs because he didn't want to do Pantera, but I think maybe this was right after Vinny had passed away. And so he basically turned this into a Pantera set. Now I went to this concert with my son and told him, you know, you're never going to see Pantera. You're never going to experience this. You know, he was in, he's into music like I was. I said, you're never going to see Pantera. I mean, that band is gone. The people are gone. But this, you'll get to see a guy from Pandaren. If you're lucky, he will perform a song or two. Well, he basically turned the whole show into a Pantera tribute. And um, uh, so just being there, you know, with my kid, uh, and uh, it was a violent pit. It was a pit where guys were like actually trying to hurt each other, which is no fun. So we, we kind of stood away from that. But, um, but that's not my biggest Pantera concert memory. My biggest Pantera concert memory took place um at the uh myriad this is at the exhibition hall this is in 1992 so this is they're still uh they only have two albums out at this point you know um but uh their big song which of course was never on mtv and was never uh, uh on the radio or anything was this song called uh effing hostile and it was like a big crowd rile up you know and and it's a kind of a uh, thumbs up to, or not thumbs up, middle fingers up to, uh, the establishment and a lot of things. Um, this is, uh, 1992, this November of 1992, uh, the, the band trouble opened for them with, if you don't know who trouble is, they were, uh, like trouble was a metal band from the mid eighties. Um, it was a strange, strange, uh, pairing of bands, but anyway, uh, this was a much bigger, venue than what, where we had seen them before, before we'd seen them in a club, you know, but I had always regretted the fact that I didn't get in on the stage diving. Uh, and so I had never, at this point, I'd never jumped off of a stage before, but when they started playing the opening of that song, hostile, I felt called to perform my first stage dive. And so, um, I made my way to the side of the stage and there were security guards keeping people off the stage, but there were, you know, a couple of security guards and a hundred people trying to get up there. And so, you know, I kind of waited for an opportune moment. And when they were doing something else, I jumped up on stage and I ran. And so the uh, chorus of the song, uh, uh, at the end of the chorus, he says, you're making me, and then there's a pause and then he just screams, you know, effing hostile. And so just like I had done uh, later with white trash, I timed it so that I could run to the center of the stage 
And uh, I'm looking at Phil Anselmo, which, by the way, I've learned this over the years. Any famous person, but especially musicians, uh, look giant on stage. But when you're standing next to them, they're not that big. In fact, I was much taller uh, and larger than Phil Anselmo. Uh, But as he was singing the end of the chorus, he gets right to the end, and he and I both look at each other in the face, and I scream, effing hostile, right into the microphone. And then he just points like, jump. (laughs) And so uh, I took a couple of steps and I jumped. This is a long leap. You have to clear the gap between the stage and the safety fence and land hopefully in the crowd. But I'm sure everybody in the crowd saw a very large man leaping off the stage and coming at them. And so they did the only sane thing that that you could do, uh, which is move. I mean, this is literally like a comedy segment from a television show or a movie. Uh, people just split. Um, and so you would think, Oh, maybe I'll land like on my feet, but the people closer to the front of the stage didn't move. And so my feet got caught there. And so I basically flipped upside down and I landed on my back and hit my head at the same time on a concrete floor. Um, I have no doubt that I had a minor concussion from this. Uh, people were trying to help me up, and I was like, I'm going to throw up. I'm, I, no, don't, don't move me. And so now I'm just laying in a pit uh, on concrete, you know, laying on top of, you know, people spit and spilled beer. Uh, and eventually somebody, you know, helped me up, and I went over to the side, and I just had this huge headache. Uh, didn't, feel, didn't feel particularly well. Uh, at the end of the show, we were walking out of the venue, and everybody was cheering me for my uh, uh, bravery of during my first visual stage dive. And I reached in my pocket and realized that my keys were missing. And so all I could figure is that when I had jumped off the stage, flipped upside down, landed on my back, and been laying there all the time, somehow my keys had fallen out of my pocket and onto the floor. So we went back to the stage. Now, the guy uh, who set up this concert, his name was Max. And Max is a local concert promoter who also ran a um, music store. He also got a little crossways with the law, but that's a different story. And uh, Max, I went to his store all the time. So he recognized me for sure. He recognized my face. And so I tried to go back in the venue and these guys were like, whoa, you can't go back in here. And they were like literally like people with push brooms or sweeping and stuff like that. And I saw Max and I was like, Max, I yelled. And he was like, who are you? I'm like, I'm the guy that comes to your store. And I lost my keys. And he goes, listen, let the guy in, let him look for his keys. And I walked all around. I didn't see him. Uh, And I was like, what am I going to do? You know? And so we, we left. We walked out. We were on our way to the parking garage. I guess we were going to a payphone or something. And we ran into a group of guys that I were acquaintances at school. And I said, hey, what are you guys doing? And uh, and one of the guys said, you're not going to believe this. We lost our keys at the show. And I said, well, so did I. And then the guy said, well, we found someone else's keys. And they pulled out my keys. I was like, those are my keys. And then they go, oh, did you find our keys? And I go, no, I don't have your keys, but you have my keys. And so they gave me my keys. 
And uh, I don't even know what happened to them. I guess we were, we just ditched them. I mean, I was driving a, a Ford Festiva and there was four of us. It wasn't like I could take, you know, another three people. Uh, just, just didn't work that way. But uh, um, anyway, and they could still be down there looking for their keys. I don't know. I <laughs> hope not. Uh, but that's how I found my keys. I didn't find them. Somebody else found my keys. We randomly ran into them in the parking garage and uh, they had my keys. So I got my keys back. And so I got my keys. I got probably a minor concussion and I got a great story. And that is my number one concert memory, uh, stage diving at a Pantera show in the middle of nowhere. Man, this is a super long episode. If you listened all the way to the end, thank you so much. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hare at robohare.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to find out more about supporting my shows, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hare for more details. All of my patrons get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly Rando Rob videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To hear more podcasts from me like Sprite Castle, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, Like a Doss, and Multiple Sadness, visit podcast.robohara.com for links and information about these shows. Congratulations. If you made it all the way to the end, you now know a little bit more about Flack. Keep on rocking in the free world, and we'll see you here next time on You Don't Know Flack. Last but not least, here's a very special shout out to all my Patreon supporters. For March 2022, this includes Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Ryan Barr, Carrie Clanton, Chris Folds, C Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavy, Dave Velociraptor, David Hearn, David Modelak, Eric Stryanisi, Extent of the Jam, Gabe DeGenero, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio. Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warrens, John Bodakar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Eckroth, Mark Alley, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Mr. Wacky, Nathan Dagenhart, Olav Holt, Patrick Markey, Rad Max, Rydar, Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Rick Reynolds, Robot Doctor 82, Roy Jacobs, Scooter Prime, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gussie, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and the mysterious Cobra Kai. Extra special thanks to my 16-bit supporters, Bill Spear, Boar's Head Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Dave Zilly, Edward Smith, Graham W. Vedke, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Scott Von Drasen, Steve Sharippa, and Vintage Volts. 